He's already trembling. I'm so glad to be with you today. Would you take your Bibles and join me in the book of Ephesians? This makes the devil tremble too when the, when the saints open the word of God. Amen. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians. We started a series last week in chapter one. We're going to pick it up in verse 15 today. So join me there, please. You NFL fans out here. All right. Uh, I think there were more of you in the last service, apparently. Uh, but if you're an NFL fan, you might recall back in 2011 that the quarterback for the Denver Broncos was a guy named Tim Tebow. Yeah, I love Tim Tebow. Now, Tim Tebow, uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle about a habit of his that particular season. You may recall this was in the news. Tim had a habit that should come as no surprise to anybody who followed his college career, who knows anything about him as a human being and as a person of devout faith. If you know about Tim, you know that he drops to his knee to the field every single game in prayer. He is a person of prayer. And win or lose, he would do this every game. He would pray on the field. And some people didn't like that. That rubbed them the wrong way. You had people in the NFL, players, who would make fun of him for this. They said, what's he doing praying about football? How silly is that? Well, he shouldn't be bringing that on the field. That's his personal view. He doesn't bring that in here. And it made people uncomfortable. And there were people in the news that made a big deal about this. The New York Times even wrote an article saying, you know, Tim Tebow's faith has ignited a debate nationwide about religion and its place in sports. And you had people uh, mocking that whole posture of prayer. They called it Tebowing, you may recall. And that was not a compliment. And then Saturday Night Live, which can always be counted on for nonsense. They came out with a sketch, a rather disdainful skit, depicting a somewhat irreverent Jesus who would visit Tim in person in the locker room. And they just kind of made fun of his prayer habit. Well, fast forward to just a couple of weeks ago. When you, perhaps like me, sat watching Monday Night Football as the Buffalo Bills faced off against the Cincinnati Bengals. And the safety for the Bills, DeMar Hamlin, makes a tackle, rises, and then promptly falls motionless on the field. And it was a very traumatic scene. Nobody really knew what was going on at the time. Is he all right? Is he alive? Is he dead? What's happening here? We now know that he suffered a cardiac arrest. But in that moment, it was very tense. It rendered the players, it rendered the fans, even the announcers were speechless at the sight of this event. They cut away to a commercial break. And it, it seemed like several long minutes before it finally went back to the broadcast and the scene was the same, just awkward, stunned silence as, as Hamlin's body lay there, players visibly upset at what was going on. And within... A few minutes' time, an ambulance carted his motionless body off the field, and gradually players came together, hands on one another's shoulders as they knelt in a circle on that field. And a team chaplain led them in prayer for DeMar Hamlin. And when amen was uttered, they rose, and that whole stadium applauded in approval. The next morning, every NFL team changed their social media photo to Hamlin's jersey number with the hashtag, pray for DeMar. 
Every figure across the spectrum in sports and elsewhere posted on social media, pleading with people, imploring them to go to their knees to pray for DeMar Hamlin. And this was a shift in tone about the matter of prayer. Now it is appropriate, it is expected, it is right. And I can report today that it seems as though DeMar Hamlin is doing much better. He's got a long road ahead of him, but he is doing better. And folks, I attribute that to the prayers of people for his health. So we've gone from this this, uh, disdain for prayer uh, over a decade later. Now we see it is acceptable. It is Why the contrast? What what has made the change there? Well, some people may say, well, you know, back then, 2011, we were were talking about something frivolous. Prayer over a football game. It's not like a man's life hung in the balance. Well, what does the Bible teach us about prayer? Is that the attitude that we're to have, that you only pray when things are dire? Is prayer to be this break glass in case of emergency type of deal? Or are we as Christians to pray at all times? Is there anything too insignificant to bring to God? No. Everything is important in the eyes of God. You come to him with everything. In fact, you are commanded as a believer to pray constantly. It is a posture of prayer. People who say that Tim Tebow prayed over insignificant things, they don't know what Tim Tebow was praying for. People close to him said he prayed for two things. He prayed thanks to God for allowing him to do what he was gifted to do. Thanks for when he was able to perform well on the field. Gave God gratitude in all things. And he prayed, protect me, Lord. Protect me. But win or lose, he would pray. Folks in life, win or lose, we give thanks to God and we pray. And we pray according to the will of God. And that is the expectation on every believer. It's not a nuclear option. It's not an emergency thing. It is natural. It flows out of our life, out of our being. And no one understood that better than the Apostle Paul. Because we're going to see today a prayer. He is going to give a glimpse into his prayer life. And very naturally, he would overflow and hit his knees before the Lord God and pray in accordance with the will of God. And after he has taken 14 verses to back that truck up and just dump the blessings of God upon the Ephesians... Just this this veritable Niagara Falls of of the blessings that God bestows upon the believer. He's going to now shift and talk to them about his prayer life concerning them. And we're going to look at this beautiful prayer in our text today. And we're going to see his motivation for that prayer. And we're also going to look at the content of that prayer. And while he was praying for the Ephesian believers, we can look at that and by implication see that it also applies to all believers, including us today. I can't wait to study this. But before we do, let's pray. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon our time and your word today. I pray that you would bless everybody here, particularly uh, particularly those who know you personally, God that they would be aware of the blessings that you have bestowed upon them and that they would walk fully in their identity, in victory, that they would understand to that which you have called them and that they would understand who they are, who you say they are. And I pray your blessing upon our time in the word today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, let us look now at this amazing little prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1. First, we're going to look at the motivation for Paul's prayer in your notes, all right? Let's look at verse 15. Paul says, for this reason, 
Here it is. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He is indicating that they are the subject of his prayers, a consistent component of his time with the Lord. And he is giving thanks for these guys. Why is he giving thanks? In your notes, his motivation is a gratitude for their authentic conversion. They have been converted to Jesus Christ. And it has been done in an authentic, obvious way. He is thankful for that. He's not praying a prayer of thanks for a a large congregation. He's not thanking God for for a beautiful building. He's not thanking God for a big old offering last week or or a record attendance or all of the different programs that are implemented in his church. Now, you can thank God for all those things. It would be right and appropriate to do so. But Paul is motivated, first and foremost, by the obvious, authentic conversion of these believers in Ephesus. And what is it about their conversion that is so obvious? How does he know that they have been transformed by faith in Jesus Notice that he says that I have heard of your faith and your love toward all the saints. And so the proof in your notes, the proof of their conversion is love for each other. They so clearly love one another. And this is the marker. This is what Jesus told the disciples. If you recall, he said, by this shall all men know you are my disciples in that you have love for one another. That's how people are to know us. Now, notice the context there is love in the body. It's love for your fellow Christian. All right? Now, are we to love the lost? Yes, we are. Are we to love all people, saved or unsaved? Absolutely. Regardless of any background, creed, race, what have you, we love all people. But, but what he's saying is you, they will know that you are of me if you love each other. If you've got love and unity in the body, that's how you are to be known as my followers. And yet, are we always known by that? (laughs) We're not always known by that. Sometimes we are known for some other things. We are known by our quarrels. We are known by our infighting. I grew up Baptist. I know of which I speak. (laughs) I have seen churches split because somebody did not return a casserole dish. All right? There are some petty things that divide us. Okay? Are, Are there things that we should, some hills to die on in church? Yes. They should be doctrinal or moral in nature, you understand, or philosophical. But often, they're about the color of the carpet. They're about the color of the walls. They're about a line item on the budget. They're about the the style of the worship or the volume level. There's a lot that we fight over. But Paul's saying, it is your love that has drawn me to thank God for the authenticity of your conversion. And we see Paul give thanks in many of his epistles, and this is no exception. So that is his motivation. And now we're going to look at his content. What is the content for Paul's prayer? He's not just giving thanks for them. He's grateful for what God has done in them, uh, the work that he started. But it is because of this work that Paul now asks the Lord to do something more, to move forward and expand on that. Look at verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and in the knowledge of him. I want you to underline the words wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. Knowledge. 
And this is part of his prayer in your notes, that they would know God. That they would know God. This is the greatest need of the Christian, that you know God. Not just that you know about God. Now you come to TLC, you keep coming here, I will teach you to know about God. All right? I will give you important biblical information. You will learn about God, but that is not your greatest need. Your greatest need is that you know God, not just about God, all right? Uh, And and I'll be honest with you, there's only so much I can do to bring that about, that you know him. That's going to have some, uh, it's going to take some responsibility on your part to seek him. But it's not just about static knowledge of God, Paul does not begin saying, I, I, for this reason, I've heard of your oversized brains and the wealth of data that you have absorbed. Uh, uh, you know, it, It's not at what you know. I think of a, I think of a movie I watched some time back, uh, a very theologically deep movie called Nacho Libre. <laughs> All right? You know, I debated over whether to share this or not, but I, I guess I'm going with it. Anyway, Nacho Libre. Uh, Jack Black, he's, uh, he works in a monastery in Mexico, but his dream is to be a Lucha Libre wrestler. And he, he's, he feels put upon and looked down upon in the monastery. And he confides in his little wrestling buddy. He goes, you know, they, they don't know me at the monastery. They, they think I don't know a load of crap about the New Testament, but I do. You know, Listen, you may know a load of crap about the New Testament, but the most important thing is that you know the author of the New Testament. See, the longer you know me, the less impressed you'll be. <laughs> Nacho Libre. Half the congregation isn't even coming back next week because I said that. <laughs> but then we might get a, mu- a bunch more that do come because I said that, huh? You never know. Use it, Lord. Anyway, when you start a relationship, when you begin a romantic relationship, the early stages of that dating time, it is vital that you get to know that person. Get to know them. You cannot subsist on the emotional aspects of it. Is that right? I've worked with young adults over the years, long time, and, and I've seen them enter into these romances. And I go to them, I go, get to know them. Don't, don't put a ring on it before you get to know them, all right? You got to learn all about this person because the, the butterflies and the flutters, that's not enough. In the long run, you got to get to know them. Suppose before I met my wife, my wife. Suppose somebody wrote a book about her, and I, I obtained that book, and I read that book cover to cover, and the title of that book is Deanna, Portrait of an Incredible Woman, you know? And by the way, today's her birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> She'll hate that. Anyway, let's say I read this book about Deanna. Chapter one, her vibrant personality. Chapter two, her extraordinary beauty. Chapter three, her vocal ability. Y'all don't know about that yet. You just wait. Chapter four, her potential to be a long-suffering wife. (laughs) That is true, uh, although less true as the years roll on. Chapter five, her love for sports. This is the shortest chapter in the whole book. All right? But let's say I read that book and I thought, wow, she sounds amazing. Well, now we've been together. We've been married over 21 years. I can tell you she is amazing. She is amazing and she's amazing. And I can say that with confidence because I know her better than I did before I ever met her. Obviously, I know her better now than I knew her after we got married 
but do I know everything there is to know about her? Not even close, right? And, and, and we, we husbands and wives, by the way, should never get to the point, as we often do, where we rest on our laurels. Right? And I've had to relearn this lesson over and over and over and in the very recent present, okay? <laughs> and so we've got to continue to plumb the depths of the one that we are in love with. And that is what we do as Christians. We plumb the depths of God and we seek him. We want to know him, that I may know God. Somebody asked me, who do you like to read, Pastor Scott? Can you recommend an author? And I don't really throw out a bunch of new authors. I tend to throw out some classics because I think those are the best. And there's an author named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer. He wrote The Pursuit of God. It's one of the greatest books ever written. He says this, listen. We have been snared in the coils of spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. That is a trap. That if you found God, you don't need to seek him anymore. Folks, we found him, or rather, he found us, amen? But we got to keep seeking him. We've got to know him. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm saved. He knows me. Doesn't that mean I know God? Well, what did Paul mean when, in Philippians 3? He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Was Paul saved when he wrote that? Oh, absolutely. He was the greatest Christian who ever lived. And yet he says, I got to know God. I need to know him. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what we got to do. We got to strain ahead. We got to move forward in our faith. King David was consumed with seeking God. God called David a man after my own heart. David didn't just rest on his laurels. He said, I, I got to know God. He never stopped seeking God. And Paul prays that God may give these believers the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of the knowledge of him. Where do you get all that? Where do you get the revelation of God? We just started a series on Wednesday night. And I hope that you join us on Wednesday night. We are looking at the doctrine of the Bible. And we talked this past Wednesday about the concept, the doctrine of revelation. How Revelation is not just the name of the last book in your Bible. It is the totality of your Bible. Your whole Bible is the revelation of God. And there's general revelation. He reveals himself in nature. But he has a special revelation in the form of the Holy Scriptures that you have access to. And so where do we get this knowledge in your notes? It's through the reading of the Word. you got to read the Bible. you got to read it. You can't just have it. You can't just look at it. You need to read it. Some people say, well, I just want to know God. I just want to know him. I want to know his will. Really? Hey, well, tell me, tell me about your quiet time. What are you reading right now? Well, I've been really busy. You don't want to know God if you're not reading the Bible. You got to be in the Bible. Read your Bible. Anybody who says, I want to know God, I want to know his will, but they're not reading the Bible, they don't really want to know God. You got to read the word, that's where you find him. That's where you find his will, his ways. Think of love letters when you first fell in love. Back in the day, and you'd get love letters. Let me explain to the young people in the audience. We had this thing once upon a time called mail. <laughs> and you used to get a letter, and it was in an envelope. That's the thing that you open. You open it, you get it out, and they would handwrite it. You know, if it wasn't a text. It was like, you know, the concept is the same. You're still getting a communique from someone 
that you are infatuated with. And I remember reading love letters once upon a time, and you just kind of, you'd man, it would be exciting. You'd go, wow, love, love, you know, and you'd read it, and you'd pour over the words, and you'd look at every turn of phrase, and you'd wonder, you know, what, what, what did she mean? What is it, you know, and you'd kind of ponder that. Why? Not because you're consumed with this physical thing called a letter. It's because you are infatuated with the one who wrote it. And you read the Bible because you love the one who gave it to you. But if you don't know him, you're just reading somebody else's mail. You need to know the one so that you can read and discern by the spirit that is in you and grow deeper in that knowledge of him. All right? But that's not enough. It's not enough just to read the Bible there's something else. We also gain knowledge. We also benefit, in your notes, through the application of the word. you got to apply it. you gotta, you got to put it to use. All right? You remember test taking in school? I used to hate taking tests. Anybody love taking tests? I hated taking tests. You know, what is a good student? I would say often a good student is someone who has learned how to accumulate information and retain it long enough to get the answers right on the test and then promptly forget it 45 minutes after taking the test. So a good student is someone who has learned how to perfectly time his or her forgetfulness because we all forget. A bad student never even goes through the illusion of learning, right? But neither of those apply to the Christian. We've got to do something with the knowledge. It needs to be a lifelong application of that knowledge. I bought a car uh, years ago. It was the only new car I've ever purchased. I've only bought one new car in my whole life. My, my family and I, we, we moved to California from Arkansas. We drove across the country. We were driving an Oldsmobile Bravada. Now, they don't make those anymore. They weren't making them when I was driving them. Uh, and, and we drove through the Mojave Desert in the summertime. And by the time we got to California, man, the wheels were falling off of this thing. It was just, the whole vehicle was like, <laughs> it was time to replace that car. And we had a, a contact, we had a friend in San Diego, and he had a hookup at this local chain of dealerships. He knew the owner, and he said, you know, this guy was a Christian. He said, there's a local pastor and his family, and they're, you know, they need a car. Can you help them out? He's like, send them down. So we went down there. They gave us the friends and family discount. And so we basically got a car at cost. Now, it was still a lot of money, and I probably shouldn't have done it. But I, you know, it was like, well, look how shiny, you know. And so I bought a brand new, it was 2008 at the time, an Acura MDX. Brand new, man. Had all the bells and whistles. It was a tech package. I'd never driven a car with a backup camera. I was like, wow. You know, it had GPS. They've all got GPS now. We, well, heck, we got it in our pocket. But, you know, it was all this fancy stuff. And I brought the car home. Now imagine with me, what if I brought that new car home and I found the owner's manual in the glove compartment and I looked at the manual and I just went, oh, whoa. And I brought it inside and I just started reading through the manual and I just became consumed with the manual and I'm not really paying attention to the car anymore and I'm just reading this manual and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, to ponder the manual. And I stay up all night and I got my flashlight and I'm reading the manual and I'm memorizing portions of the manual and I'm reciting it to my wife. Honey, listen. And I'm sharing from the manual and I'm copying down passages from the manual onto little index cards and I'm taping them to my mirror 
and I'm shaving and I'm reading the stuff that I've written down there. And, and maybe I even learn Japanese. <laughs> you know, so I could study the manual in the original language. You say, that's ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? Because what's the purpose of the manual? It's to operate the car. And yet, if we just read the Bible and get puffed up with all this information, but we never take it and apply it in our lives, we have ignored the fundamental purpose for the Word of God that He has given to us. These scriptures are enough for you to grow in your faith if you will dedicate yourself to them and learn how to apply them in your life. 1 John 2, 7, uh, 27 says, But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. That means you've got a spirit living in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So you are a spiritual being. You are indwelled by a spirit. You open the word of God, which is supernatural, and is spiritually discerned. And you grow through the reading and the observance and the application and obedience to what you find in the word. He says, you have no need of a teacher. Now, I am a teacher, and I want you to keep coming here, but I want you to understand something. If the only time that you digest the Scripture is during the 45 minutes or so that we spend together on Sunday morning, that ain't going to do it. you got to learn to feed yourself. I'm glad you're here. Keep coming. But my role as a teacher is to be a dietary supplement to what God is doing in your life. It's like a personal trainer. You go to the gym and you meet with the trainer. You, you still have responsibility throughout the week. You've got to eat the right stuff. You've got to exercise on your own. You go to him for targeted work. And so you come here for targeted work, but you have to learn to feed yourself. And there are different levels to that for different folks. I'm aware of that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, he notes different levels of growth for the believer. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, he says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. What's a spiritual person? That's someone who's born again, who is mature. He says to the Corinthians, because they were, they were immature, he says, I couldn't address you as such, but as people of the flesh. What, what is a person of the flesh? That's an unsaved, unredeemed person. They're spiritually dead. And then he said, as infants in Christ. Spiritual infants, what's that? That's someone who's born again, but they're not yet mature. And so he says, I had to feed you not with solid food, but with milk. You were not ready for it. When you got a baby, you don't feed him a T-bone. You feed him milk because he doesn't have any teeth, even after he gets teeth. You don't give him the T-bone. You got to cut it up. You got to make it manageable. That's the job of a teacher in the early goings of a Christian life. And so you got these categories, spiritual people. That's your mature, saved people. That's some of y'all. You got spiritually dead people, that's anybody who doesn't know the Lord, and you've got spiritual infants who are brand new believers that need to start slow and build and grow. The problem is, in many churches, you got people who have been saved for years. They've been born again for maybe decades, but they're still infants. They still need the milk. That ought not be. You can't have somebody who's, who's, who's supposed to be a spiritual adult, but they're functioning as a baby. All right? 
And so we all grow at different rates, but, but there's a time we've got to take responsibility, learn how to feed ourselves, okay? And we go back to Ephesians. We look at verse 18. Paul continues to pray. He says, I'm praying that you, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Have the eyes of your heart enlightened. I got a friend named Paul Balash wrote that song, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. You know, this is where that comes from. But he says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And so in your notes, he's praying that they would know where they're going. Ultimately, do you know where you're going? What, what is the hope to which he has called you? What is that hope? Your definition of what Paul means by hope will determine whether or not your brand of Christianity is rooted in earthly things or in heavenly things. Because we have a hope. Now, there is a form of progressive Christianity, and I'm going to talk about progressive Christianity on a Wednesday night coming up uh, in another month or a month and a half. Uh, it's, a, it's a vile movement that is debilitating the, the, uh, the people of God today. And there are ideas advanced in progressive thought that says that the hope of the believer is to be the embetterment of the world around us, to make earth a better place. And they say we've got to be about advancing uh, goodwill toward human beings and improving people's lives and situations. Now, is that a bad thing? Are we to help the helpless? Are we to stand up for the rights of the, uh, those who can't speak for themselves? Are we to uh, help the poor and the impoverished and the hungry and the sick? Absolutely. But is that what Paul's talking about? Is that our fundamental goal and purpose in this life? What is this hope? You've, have you ever heard the expression, you know, some people are, are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. I don't even think that's possible. I don't deny some people don't take our time on earth seriously and don't invest their lives in, in other people, but I don't really think they're heavenly minded. I think that it's impossible to have an accurate understanding of what heaven is and to know what lies ahead in eternity and not be of the utmost earthly good. Because if you really know what eternity is going to be like, you're going to be doing all you can to bring as many people to that understanding as you possibly can. And so 1 John 3 says this, but we know, here's what hope looks like biblically, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Titus 2.13, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, the, the Thessalonian Christians are concerned. They're worried. They got dear loved ones that have died, faithful believers that have passed on. They know Jesus is coming back. What about you know Uncle Joe and Aunt Betsy and they're dead now? Are they going to miss out? And Paul sets them straight. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. No, they're not going to miss out. They're with him already. And yeah, he's coming back. And guess what? He's going to bring them with him. They beat you to him. And you've got a hope that you're going to see them again. Every memorial, every funeral that I officiate at, I quote that verse. Why? Because people need to know they have hope. 
we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. We grieve when we lose loved ones in Christ. We mourn. We who are Christians, but we don't mourn like the hopeless mourn. Because there's, a, there's something, we're going to see them again. My grandma died years ago and I went to that memorial and you could see in the audience at that funeral who was born again and who was not because of the way they grieved. Those of us, and grandma knew the Lord. And so we who knew the Lord, we were sad that she's not with us now, but we know we're going to see her again. It was an open casket funeral. I'm not a big fan of those, but sometimes, you know, people need closure. But I looked at that and, and you know, the people who were not born again, they, for them, that was grandma. That's her in that casket. Look at grandma. And it was sad. And we who knew the Lord were like, that's not grandma. That's just the candy shell, the peanuts in heaven. Amen? <laughs> Going to see the peanut again. <laughs> so hope for the Christian, not an earthbound thing. John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I... Uh, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He wants you with him for eternity. Hope. Do you know where you're going? All right? And then he goes on. Paul says in Ephesians 1.18 uh, that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Not only does he want you to know where you're going, but the next thing in your notes, he's praying that they would know who they are. Do you know who you are? The word inheritance here, what does that imply? Do you earn an inheritance? No, it's yours by birthright. You just had to be born. And that inheritance is linked to your identity upon birth. When you are born again, you are his child. You become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. There is an inheritance you don't have to do anything for, and it's linked to who you are. So there are two questions that are prompted by verse 18. First of all, uh, the hope to which he's called you. Do you know where you're going? And then he says the riches of your inheritance. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you're going? Do you know who you are? Do Christians ever struggle with those questions? Yeah. Needlessly. But we do. Why? Because we're forgetful. We forget. We need reminding. And, and, and we're bombarded by the enemy who likes to throw doubt at us, who likes to throw accusations and lies and deception at us. Why does he do that? Why does he cause us to doubt where we're going, to doubt who we are, to doubt that God loves us, we who are in Christ? Because he knows he cannot have your soul. The devil can't touch you. If you, are, if you belong to Jesus, the devil can't touch you in, in eternity. But he can cause you to doubt and he can bring, he can plant those seeds and he can render you into a puddle of, of, of impotent helplessness so that you don't reproduce your faith in others while you're on this earth. And we can't let him do that. And I pray that for you. I pray the same. I have not been your pastor long, but I'm praying for you the same thing that Paul is praying for these Ephesians, that you would know where you're going, that you would know who you are. And then the next one in your notes, Paul prayed that they would know power. That they would know power. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Immeasurable greatness. Uh, uh, the original language, uh, it can translate surpassing greatness, meaning it's better than anything 
There is a greatness in you. There is a power that has a quality that surpasses whatever you are presently experiencing, good or bad. If you're going through good things, it's better. It's better than the best human relationship. It's better than the best tasting wine, food, a position, acclaim, whatever. There is a power that surpasses it all. If you're going through something bad, a trial, a tribulation, you got to understand there's a power that, that is overwhelmingly superior to whatever evil you are presently enduring. It's better than anything. It is more powerful, and you can rest in that. And what is the nature of that power? Paul goes on, it says, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. This is a power that is in your notes demonstrated in Christ. You want to know what this power looks like that's at work in you right now that you have access to? It's the power that was at work in Jesus. In his life, in his ministry, in his death, in his resurrection. Paul goes on, he says, this power, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Everything that Jesus did, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, those are historic facts. They are not symbolic. He didn't, he didn't symbolically die. He did not symbolically rise. He literally rose. The power of God raised Christ from the dead. And he's going to raise you too. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One of these days, you and I are going to be laid in the ground. But in the eyes of God, we are not dead. We are alive in him, and one day we will physically be raised from the dead. That is the promise of Scripture. The same power that raised Christ will raise you, but you know what? That same power is at work in your life even now because you may not think you have much to offer. You may not think that little old you can make a difference. Well, that is a familiar story because God always uses the weak things to accomplish his purposes. I think of a little boy that had uh, just a meager, paltry sum of fishes and loaves, and Jesus had, had been followed by this multitude, thousands and thousands of people, and the disciples come to him, and you know, they'd been sitting around and listening to Christ for a long time, and they're probably getting hungry, and the disciples are saying, hey, send them away so they can get something to eat. Jesus is like, you feed them. <laughs> we, we can't feed them. How are we going to feed so many? Oh, we've got, well, here's this little boy. He's got a lunch. Is that, an, I mean, what is that among so many? Jesus said, bring it to me. And he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and they had more than they could carry and he sent them out. Folks, you come to God and you say, I don't have much, but it's yours. And he blesses it and there's a breaking, and he gives it to you, and you've got more than you can carry. And he sends you out, not by your own power, but by his power. And that power is alive in you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this is historically demonstrated in Christ. And then in your notes, this power is unequaled in eternity. It's unequaled in eternity. Paul says in verse 21, it's a power far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The language here is the language used of the angelic realm. 
Rule, authority, power, dominion. You see that. We're going to see that in Ephesians 6 when we talk about the unseen realm and about angels and demons. This means there is no angel. There is no demon on the level of the Son of God in terms of power. There is no power above him in heaven or in hell. Paul says, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It's a power that echoes in eternity. And this is the, the reason that, that we can be confident. This is the reason that Paul was supremely confident in the face of whatever opposition he encountered. Okay, was Paul confident? Listen, I think Paul must have been obnoxiously annoying to the people who opposed him. Can you imagine how annoying this guy was? Because they couldn't, he was unflappable. There was nothing that they could do to, to, to throw him off course. He had such joy in the Lord. They're like, all right, Paul, we're going to kill you. He's like, dude, to die is gain. Bring it. Yeah. Oh, you, want, you, you like that? All right, fine. Well, we'll let you live. To live is Christ. Awesome. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to stone you. And then when you're dead, we're going to beat your body with sticks. We're going to desecrate it. And then we're going to throw you in the ocean. What do you think about that? Dude, these present sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that is surpassing. Which ocean are we going to? What do you do with a guy like that? All you can do is throw him in the clink, man. Just you know, lock him up, throw away the key. But then he, he, just, he just converts all your guards. It's a power. And you and I have this power. And Paul says he's also praying in your notes that they would know victory. Do you know victory? What is the full reality for you and I as believers? Look at verse 22. It says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, this is amazing. I love this passage right here. It says that he put him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does Paul say about Christ in Colossians 2, verse 9? He says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The total authority and power of the Godhead dwells in Christ's body. Who's his body? According to Ephesians, we're his body. Right now, presently, we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Are you following this? Christ has the fullness of God. We have the fullness of Christ. Therefore, we are the extension, believer, on the earth of Christ and the Father. That is a direct reality of something. In your notes, it is a reality of relationship with him. Your victory is an extension of your relationship with him by virtue of who you are, that you are who he says you are. You have victory because you are the body of Christ and all the power of the Godhead resides in the body of Christ. We have a relationship with him. We see our, our relationship to Christ throughout scripture. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride. He's the head, we're the body. He's the cornerstone, we're the building. He's the last Adam, we are a holy people, a new race, born of him. We partake of his headship. He's the vine, we're the branches, we have life in him. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. We benefit from his guidance, from his protection. We are the fullness on this earth. That's how he has designed for it to be. We need to walk in that. 
because we are one with him. Do you know where you're going? Do you know who you are? Do you understand the power that is in you? And are you claiming victory each and every day? These are the realities. You don't have to do anything to make it so. You just got to believe it. I told you there were no commands in the early goings here of Ephesians. Just a whole lot of blessing. So you're welcome from the Lord Jesus. I'm not giving you a bunch of homework. All, all I'm asking is that you believe what he's saying to you today. This is Paul's prayer for them. It's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me. Now let's be one with Christ because we are. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, I pray your blessings upon this group as our prayer team makes their way down to the front right now. I am so thankful for the authenticity of the inward change that you have wrought in the life of every Christian present here today. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a work, that you, you have not just intended to save them. You didn't just come to give us fire insurance regarding hell. You came, you said, that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. And so I pray that they would experience the knowledge of you on a deeper level each and every day to know where it is they have been called to who you have claimed that they are in Christ, and may they walk in that identity, in that victory, and in power and the fullness of their abundant life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.